We are going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, if you brought your Bible with you. We will be in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, and we will be there here in a little bit. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, the scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, As I said earlier, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you all after taking a week off last week. Uh, We always take that week after Christmas off for the family. Uh, Cheryl and mine's anniversary is in December, and so it's always a good time uh, just for us to get away. Went to San Antonio for a few days, did SeaWorld, Riverwalk, all that good stuff, and uh, enjoyed the nice warm weather while we were down there, and then came back up here. It's nice and cold, and um, I appreciate the cold weather, Uh, but we had a great time with the family, and certainly glad to be back with all of you, our church family, this morning. So we're here on January the 8th, second Sunday in the new year, Uh, and so how many of your New Year's resolutions have already failed miserably? After one weekend, anybody want to no? Okay, that's good. Um, maybe some of you didn't make the New Year's resolution, to be honest. I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, a lot of New Year's resolutions have failed by this point. Statistically, we know that to be the case, uh, that those who make New Year's resolutions sometimes uh, a week in are already failing. Um, and one of the things about New Year's resolutions that are good is that they can lead us to positive change in our life. Uh, any kind of uh, thing in your life that can help you do better in your job, or be more available to your family, or turn your physical or emotional health around. Uh, Those are certainly good things. Um, But from our perspective, from a Christian perspective, we believe that New Year's resolutions, simply worldly New Year's resolutions, are lacking a key ingredient uh, when it comes to true lasting life change. And that that, that key ingredient is a relationship with the Lord. Uh, We believe that only true change comes from a relationship with God. So as thinking along those lines and thinking about maybe changes you want to make or things you want to do in this year, or maybe changes that you want God to kind of work in your life, um, for the next month, for, the, for our, the rest of our time together in January, we are going to look at times people's lives changed in the Bible. And not only did their, did their life change, but their name changed as well. And so our series for the rest of January is New Year, New Name, uh, looking at five different biblical characters that had their name changed either by God or someone else in Scripture and how that kind of was also symbolic of a life change for them as well. Names were incredibly important in Scripture. A name uh, didn't get picked just because it sounded good, uh, but because it ended up being something uh, indicative about that person's character moving forward. Names were often prophetic. Uh, in that whatever the child was named, he or she would often kind of bear that out in the way that they walked. Uh, uh, The subject of our scripture this morning, Jacob, who becomes Israel in the scripture we're going to read, he certainly is an example of that. But before we get into Jacob and his name being changed to Israel, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a fight Anybody ever been in a fight? I won't, not, we're not looking around necessarily. Maybe some of you have been in a physical like fist fight before. I'm sure that there's some in the room that have. Uh, I played football, basketball, all that stuff, and I was your typical guy who wanted to be manly and all that. Um, but I never really ended up in a, in a physical fight. I usually tried to talk my way out of things. Um, and so I never ended up in, in a fist fight per se, but uh, you know, I was a lineman in football, and so that was basically a fight, you know, every play uh, for a few seconds. And I remember getting punched one time in a basketball game. And so I've experienced fights like that. But, but even if you haven't experienced like a physical fight, I'm sure that almost all of you, if not literally all of you in the room this morning, have experienced a fight on an emotional or spiritual level. 
Um, maybe a fight you had, like an actual argument uh, with someone that you love uh, or, or someone that you are in a relationship with. Uh, maybe not even in a, like a, a, a romantic or friendly relationship, but someone that you have to be around, like a coworker or a classmate. Maybe you experience fights like that. And maybe you've even experienced some of the inward fights, the, the, the emotional and spiritual fights going on inside all of us uh, that nobody else can really see when we're struggling with an addiction or a certain sin or we're struggling with a life choice and we don't know exactly what direction to turn, what choice to make. Uh, and in the midst of those fights, I think that even for the smartest among us, there comes a point where we think to ourselves, there's no way out. There doesn't seem to be a good option, a good choice. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a path I can take that will fix this problem. In other words, there comes a time where in the midst of a fight, it goes beyond our ability to do anything, beyond our ability to fix it or to win the fight. And the scripture we're going to read this morning, we see someone who is in that, that kind of fight, someone who has come to that point. And it is at that point that we finally realize, kind of a key point I want to put before you this morning, that we finally realize true victory comes only through surrender. In Genesis 32, Jacob, the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, is at that point. Jacob had grown up being able to finagle his way into success. He had done a pretty good job at it. He was able to trick his older brother into his birthright and the blessing from his father. He manipulated his uncle into giving him a fortune of livestock. Jacob had engineered a good life for himself. He had the wife, or the wives he wanted. He had the blessing of his father that he had essentially stolen or tricked out of his brother. And he had great wealth. But there comes a moment where even again for the most suave and powerful among us that the old tricks stop working. The, the manipulation or whatever you're like really good at that you think you're like the, the one person in the world that's extra good at it or, or this is your unique gifting, there comes a point where that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't get you what you want. And you find yourself in a place where like Jacob, you finally feel powerless. And again, we find Jacob in that position in Genesis 32, 22 through 32. The same night he arose, he being Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob is in a lonely, fearful moment. He is fearful of what's coming in the next chapter, if you're reading through Genesis. 
He is fearful of his brother who is approaching, his brother Esau. And just to leave you a, a little bit of context and why Jacob is fearful, you have to kind of tell the whole story. Uh, if you wanted to read this on your own on your free time, you can go back to Genesis 25 and then kind of fill in the blanks as you move forward to where we are this morning. Uh, but Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, uh, they have a child. They have two children, actually, Jacob and his brother Esau. They're twins. Uh, and uh, Jacob's mom gets a prophecy while the two children are in her womb, that there are two nations in her womb, and that the older will end up serving the younger, uh, meaning that the older brother in Jewish tradition was supposed to get all of the good, the bounty, the blessing. Uh, but it was prophesied from a very early age that Jacob, the younger brother, would be the one to get that. Uh, Even though he was a twin, he was the second child delivered, but he was delivered in a unique way in that as he came out of his mother's womb, he had his brother's hill in his hand. He was clutching Esau's hill. And so Jacob receives the name Jacob, which to you and I just means Jacob, right? Or Jake, we might put it in American terminology. But in the Hebrew, that name meant trickster, finagler, manipulator, hill grabber, for instance, Someone who is always trying to reach up to get to the next step by tricking the one above him or her. Someone who is looking to manipulate a situation to get the blessing that he or she may not deserve, but they're going to work around in such a way that they get that which they want. They're going to do whatever it takes to manipulate the situation to work out to their advantage. That's what Jacob's name meant. And Jacob lived up to that name. He tricks his brother a couple of times. First, his brother comes in one day from the, from the field or from hunting, and he's extremely famished, and Jacob has been making this stew, which tells you that there's a little something different about Jacob because men in, in the Jewish world, they weren't at home cooking a lot, but Jacob was. I, I, I like to cook. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he stood out uh, amongst his, uh, his generation in that he was there while Esau was out and about doing whatever Esau was doing, and Esau came home hungry, Jacob had this stew. He said, I'll give you this stew if you give me your birthright. Now, Esau didn't make the wisest decision. We know Esau, even as we continue to read on about him, that he made these kind of split seconds, terrible decisions. He ends up marrying two Hittite women later in the story that grieves his parents. That's also kind of this just impulsive, making rash decisions. But he does that here as well. And he sells his birthright. He sells the firstborn status, if you will, to Jacob for a pot of stew. And then later in the story, Jacob not only tricks his brother again, essentially, but he tricks his father as well. He pretends to be Esau, and he goes in and receives the blessing from Isaac that was supposed to belong to Esau. And so you can see why Esau might be angry already, but Scripture actually spells it out for us. Genesis twenty-seven forty-one says, Now Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Again, it's pretty obvious. Esau is not a fan of Jacob. He's not, uh, he, he, he's, he's not happy with Jacob. He wants to see him uh, not only taken from the position of blessing, but wiped off the face of the earth. Their mom catches word of this, tells Jacob, you need to go away. I have an uncle named Laban. He lives in this other place named Haran. You need to go there get away from your brother. I'll tell you when you can come back and everything will be safe. Jacob goes off. There's a long story of what happens there with two wives and a bunch of uh, a big flock of livestock and all this stuff that happens. But essentially, Jacob has got to the point where he's ready to head home and he's coming back. And he catches word as he's coming back that his brother who we last saw say in Genesis 27, I want to kill that guy. We see 
Jacob hear the news that his brother is coming for him, that he's headed his direction. Jacob, fearful, obviously, begins to finagle, again, begins to try to manipulate the situation to his advantage. If you read the context, you'll know that he sends gifts to Esau in front of the caravan of people. He tries to orchestrate this thing where Esau will somehow have his heart softened toward him, and maybe he won't kill him after all. Jacob is once again trying to manipulate his brother. And he comes to the point this moment where we pick it up in in, in this chapter in Genesis 32 where he seems to finally reach the bottom and and he goes off by himself. Uh, In in, in verses 9 through 12, he prays that God would do something, that God would help him. And this seems to be God's response that we see in this story. Jacob purposefully finds himself alone. Imagine his emotions. Not only was he fearful that his brother might do something to him, but think about He wasn't only fearful for himself, all of a sudden he had a lot to lose. He had wives, he had had possessions, he had wealth and riches. He had manipulated the situation to make a really, really good life for himself. And all of that was now in danger because of something that he did long ago. Have you ever been in a situation or had the feeling where something you did long ago was threatening to rear its ugly head today? That it would come home to roost, so to speak. You know, something that you tried to forget, something that you told yourself that nobody else remembered, and all of a sudden that's coming back up. You know what that feels like, right? You know the kind of frustration and the fear and the guilt and the shame that goes with that. Jacob seems to get himself alone because he's dealing with this, as well as just the pure fear that he's about to be destroyed. But I think in that moment, Jacob realized that his true enemy was not Esau. That his true enemy was not some outside force, but the greatest enemy was found within himself. See, the greatest enemy that we will ever face is self. It is the one that lies within us, our sinful nature from a biblical perspective that lies within us. That is the great enemy that Jacob is now face to face with because all of his sin is coming back. All of his fear, all of the stuff that he's always dealt with is finally coming back. And then something strange, let's put it that way happens overnight a man shows up is all we see at first and Jacob wrestles with him all night long until dawn starts to break now we know later on that Jacob thought this man was actually God himself in Hosea it said the angel of the Lord actually shows up as Hosea reflects back on this story Hosea chapter 12 I believe and so it's some sort of divine being if not God himself it's someone who carries the weight of divinity along with him an angelic or divine being, maybe even God or, or the Son of God showing up and wrestling with Jacob in this moment all night long. It said that the man did not prevail against Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean that God couldn't have defeated Jacob. We'll see here in just a moment that he could have very easily. But what it means is that Jacob was not going to give up. That once again, he was living up to his name. That he was going to hold on as long as he could. You probably know that kind of feeling as well, right? When you feel like you're you're at the last possible shred of hope for whatever dream or big thing you have in front of you. Maybe it's a relationship that's about to fall apart. It's a career that you're about to lose out on. Or uh, you're about to flunk out of college or whatever. And you have this one last strand of hope. And you're grasping onto it as hard as you can. I'm not going to let this go. I'm not going to give up. Jacob the manipulator, the trickster, the finagler is at that position where he's not going to let go. And finally, as if the man wants to show him who he really is and who Jacob is really messing with, he touches his hip. 
touches. Like he didn't say he punched it or he, he kicked him or he put a strong elbow inside of him. It doesn't say any of that. It says that the man touched Jacob's hip and it was removed from its socket. Popped out of joint. Anybody in the room ever had anything pop out of joint? Like a shoulder, maybe a hip, I don't know. I would imagine that's not very pleasant. Uh, I have been uh, in a situation where I've had a similar like muscular thing happen. I was running one time, I know, stretch your imagination. Uh, it was probably my first mistake that I was running, but I was running one time, and I remember running, that's how, this is how I run, I guess, I don't know, and I was running down the football field trying to get back in shape, it was probably in January, uh, and I heard like audible noise, I had lifted weights before, which is really stupid, in my lower legs, it was, I was trying to get back in shape, it was like the first time in a long time, and so everything was really tight in my lower body, and so I, I knew I probably shouldn't be doing that anyway, I was running, and I heard audibly a like that. Some of you may have been there before. Now, I thought, you know, somebody, there's a sniper. I got shot. You know, I don't know what happened. There was a, this pain in my, in my back, in my leg. I was thinking to myself, I don't have my cell phone on me. I'm just going to lay here and scream help until somebody comes and gets me. I was able to get up and make it back home and everything was okay. But if you've been there, maybe you've been there before, I pulled my hamstring. I thought I had torn it completely. I'd just partially torn it, pulled it, we might say, dealt with it for several weeks. I'm still dealing with it occasionally now. I think it's still something that I can feel every now and then. Uh, but it wasn't a pleasant experience. Now, imagine that sort of pain after someone touches you. Right? Jacob thought he had been fighting with all of his might and that he had a shot and he's, he's holding on and he's giving it everything he got. And his enemy, the guy that he's fighting against, his opponent touches. And pow, his hip pops out of joint. See, Jacob did not prevail in the sense that he beat the angel. No, he prevailed in another way, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it was very obvious who was in control in this situation. There was no way God could have actually been defeated. And we see this by the power move that's made immediately after that by this man. You see, in this world, uh, in this world that the scripture is written, to name someone was to exercise power over them. Uh, in, in the creation account, Adam names the animals. Uh, it's a way for him to show, as God would say, his dominion over creation. Uh, and one of the other uh, guys we're going to look at in this series, Daniel, his name is changed to Belteshar by King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's Nebuchadnezzar's uh, one of his many attempts to exercise his, his power over the Hebrews as they are now uh, his, uh, his subjects. And so we see with this individual naming Jacob or renaming Jacob that he is taking the high ground. He's showing who's really in control. And he says to Jacob, what's your name? Now, for you and me, that's nothing. That's just an introduction, right? I would say Corey, uh, but it wouldn't mean anything. My parents picked that name because they liked the way it sounded, which there's nothing wrong with that, but there is no like, inherent deep meaning to my name. But when Jacob was asked that question, it wasn't just like, I want to know what your name is. The guy already knew anyway. But Jacob's name meant something. And so to kind of put it in our vernacular, it's as if the individual with whom Jacob is fighting says, who are you? And Jacob, when he responds with his name, is basically saying, who am I? I'm the trickster. I'm the manipulator. I'm the liar, the finagler. Even by saying his name, he was subjecting himself to all of his shortcomings and to his main shortcoming of who he really was deep down. It must have been a difficult moment to come face to face once again with his real enemy himself. 
But the person with whom he's fighting picks him up out of that moment immediately and says, not anymore. That's not your name any longer. It's no longer Jacob. Now your name is Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Again, not in the sense of prevailing over God, but finally reaching that victory to which Jacob had been searching his whole life. How did he prevail if he didn't actually beat God? Uh, We see him ask the creature, ask the man his name. The man eludes the question, once again, showing Jacob, no, I'm in control. You're not going to know my name. I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to leave. And so how did Jacob actually prevail? He reached that moment where he was powerless, and he knew it, and he embraced it. He reached that moment as he was holding on to his last strand of hope. His brother was coming to kill him. He knew it. That's what his brother had said was going to happen. His brother was approaching. He didn't feel like there was any way he could avoid it in himself. And so he's holding on. He's fighting with everything that he has. He is wrestling in a real sense, but also in a metaphorical sense, trying to figure a way out of his problem. He is giving it everything that he has. And then in a moment, God touches his hip. It pops out a joint. And he realizes, I cannot win this fight. I cannot do this. When he names the place Peniel, he says, I have striven with God and yet I survived. He realized that he was fortunate to survive this encounter with God. And in that moment of complete humility, he says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. Not as if I can somehow coax the blessing out of you or I can wrestle it away from you or I can trick you into giving me the blessing. No, God, I see it now. I'm not going to stop until you work, until you bless me. It is only then when he realizes that truth once again that we started with, that victory comes only through surrender. And when Jacob surrendered to the will of God and to the fact that God knew what was best for him more than he did, his life changed. He left that situation and he went with a seemingly different kind of confidence and boldness and faced his brother Esau face to face. Esau ends up embracing him. It's a great story. It's not at all what Jacob was expecting. But he seems to have changed from this point forward. And and God predicts that with giving him this name, one who has striven with God and man and yet prevailed. Israel, that name means one who strives with God. It can also mean that God strives or God fights. It can mean either one of those things. And we see that not only in Jacob, who becomes Israel, but we see that in the nation of Israel, of which you and I are spiritual descendants. Even today, as we strive with God and with people, we strive with ourselves And we, like Jacob, still today are coming to that point where we are broken, where we finally realize, I can't fix this on my own. God, I'm not going to leave your presence until you bless me. And in verse 31, after Jacob has been blessed, we see almost in a picturesque scene, the sun rises on Jacob limping down the path the place that he named the face of God. It's better to limp down God's path than it is to sprint down your own. From a physical, worldly perspective, Jacob seemed weaker. He was limping down the path. But he was no longer running the wrong direction. He was no longer sprinting his own race. Instead, he was sprinting God's. You ever been in a situation, folks, those of you who have followed Jesus for decades... 
You ever been in a situation where you thought you were in the right? Like, absolutely, there's no way you could be wrong, and you're, you're chasing this goal or this thing, whether it's a career or it's a family thing or, or it's, it's something in the, in the church or your relationship with God, and you're going after it with everything that you have, uh, and, and you're just pursuing it so wholeheartedly that you're willing to put everything else behind. And it's not until you get, like, almost there that you look back and you realize you've been going the wrong direction. How frustrating that is. To spend years doing something and then to look back and say, wow, I was off base. In that moment, you're going to realize if you've been there, if you will be there eventually someday, hopefully none of you, all of you won't, but if you ever are there or you have been there, you know in that moment it would have been better to limp God's direction than it would have been to sprint my own, to go full speed the direction that I want to go. No, limping down God's path shows that you've been humbled by an encounter with God, that you know it's not all about you, that you know that you can't figure it out on your own and you're going to need a crutch, you're going to need something. His name is God, by the way. You're going to need him to help you get down along the path to go the direction that he would have you go and it's better to go there with his assistance than it is to go to hell on your own free will. Jacob only realized the true purpose of his life when he surrendered to God's direction. Where are you headed in 2017, or for the rest of your life for that matter? I know this feels fresh because it's a brand new year, but really it's just a date on a man-made calendar, kind of an arbitrary thing. But your life in general, where do you feel like you're you're being led where do you see yourself going? Are you wrestling with that, trying to figure it out? Where God would have you go with career choices. You see, I'm 33 years old. I used to think that people just had that feeling or that battle when they were in college and trying to figure out what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. But now I realize that that feeling of wrestling what you're going to do, that there's different situations of that all through life. Can I get a testimony? Yes. I don't know. I'm raising the roof all of a sudden, but maybe you understand what that's like. Um, I know that all of you have either been in, you're coming out of, or you're about to go into one of those situations where you're struggling with, what do I do next? How's God going to lead me? You're wrestling in a very real way, although it be metaphorical. You're wrestling with trying to understand where God would have you go. And maybe you're a lot like me and a lot like Jacob where you feel pretty good about yourself. You feel like you're smart. You feel like you're wise. You feel like you're able to go and do these things and you've had a good history behind you and you've done a lot of good things and you're going to do it with your power. You're going you're to go out there and you're just going to seize it. You're going to seize the day and you're going to be uh, you know, a master of industry or a master of whatever calling that God has called you towards. It's better to encounter God and limp his direction than it is to think you have it figured out and sprint the wrong direction. True victory comes only through submission. And I hope that 2017 for you is a year of submission to the will of God, to allowing him to write your name the way he would have it, not the way you would have it. Try to put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Imagine encountering God and him asking you the same question that he asked Jacob. Who are you? What's your name? Jacob replied with trickster, swindler, you know, whatever his name meant. How would you reply? How would you reply today if God, who are you? I'm a cheat. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer, adulteress. I'm a 
I'm a failure. I'm a deadbeat dad or deadbeat mom. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lazy student. I'm, I'm whatever. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm untalented. I'm not as smart as everybody else. That's who I am. You know what God would say to you? Those of you who claim to follow and believe in Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him, I believe much of the same thing that he said to, Jude, to, to Jacob. Not anymore. That's not who you are anymore. Now, I'm going to give you a new name. It's no longer sinner, which is basically what all of those things, you put them together, that's what they are. It's no longer sinner. No, it's son or daughter, the most high God. It's, in our vernacular, Christian. One who is becoming more like Christ every day. That's who you are. So in 2017, folks, those of you who have a relationship with Jesus, that's who you are. Not what you've done wrong, not what you've done really well on your own. No, you are a son or a daughter of God. And in that kind of being, he has a calling for you, not only this year, but today, tomorrow, the next day, this week, this moment, God has a calling and a plan for you. And my prayer for you, for me, is that we would submit to what God has for us instead of just trying to figure it out on our own. Our reason is broken. Our reason, our knowledge, our power has led us down the wrong direction. It led us to a valley in the wilderness by ourselves, just like it led Jacob. My reason is broken, and so I'm going to depend on God's instead, not my own. I'm going to, with Jacob, and hopefully you will as well, say, God, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to be in your presence until you bless me, because that's the only place I can truly receive blessing and direction and purpose. And if you come to God with that humble spirit, he will lead you. Maybe not the direction you want to. It might be frustrating. Not everything went perfectly for Jacob from this point forward. Not everything went perfectly for Israel from this point forward. But God led. And if you follow, God will lead you.